Hello and welcome to the Sandro Forte podcast. Over the many years I've been running a business, I've met many, many successful people, entrepreneurs, sports stars, celebrities, and dare I say, even royalty. So what makes a person successful? Do we know what success is? And the all-important question, can we create success for ourselves? This podcast series invites a diverse group of people to share their insights, their wisdom, and the things they've learned along the way. Today, I'm very excited to say I'm joined by someone who has been an elite performer in two of the most competitive industries, elite sport and performance psychology. A career spanning over 25 years, Paul McVeigh began life as a Premier League footballer for Tottenham Hotspur and Norwich City, Burnley and Luton, I seem to remember as well, as well as representing his country, Northern Ireland internationally. After retiring from football, Paul utilised his master's degree in psychology and his expert level understanding of his methodology of high performance to deliver the mental tools required to elevate the performance of leaders and teams from organisations across the world. And for those of you who know me, I'm something of a psychology nerd and its various applications. So this podcast, I have to say, not just because Paul's a really, really nice guy, as you're going to come on to find out, but he's a very, very bright guy who is literally changing the lives of many individuals and businesses around the world. So without further ado, uh, Mr. Paul McVeigh, welcome to the Sandro Forte podcast. Sandro, thanks very much for having me. And I really appreciate you reading out the introduction that I wrote for you. Thank <laughs> <you>. <laughs> well, so we've established that you've got an ego, so that's yeah. good. Uh, <laughs> and I, I have to say, I, already I kind of love the accent. I think you are the first man from Northern Ireland with a true uh, Northern Irish accent on the on the podcast. So this is a first, I think. I can't honestly remember of the 170 previous guests, uh, anyone with such a such a lovely lilt to their to their accent. So um, for those people who you know are not followers of football as I am, uh, we had a we had a chat before the show started today that uh, I remember you wearing an Alice band way back when, um, and, you know, and you're, you're, you haven't changed much, Paul, I have to say, 43 years of age, but I uh, haven't changed much over the years. But for those of you out there listening that don't know very much about football, I mean, where have you been all these years? But Paul, just tell us a little bit about who you are, your background, and then we'll talk a little bit about what you're doing now. Yeah, it's it's been it's been such a probably surreal experience is, is the only way you can describe it because you know, talk about my accent, that's me growing up in Belfast in the 70s and 80s in a effectively a civil war, you know, just madness, chaos, bombs going off every day, uh, tanks driving down your street, soldiers walking past you holding M60 rifles as you're walking to school and occasionally getting hit across the head with them just because you looked at them in a different way. And and that was my life growing up. But that was probably the kind of the what people from the outside of Belfast or outside Northern Ireland looking in would have seen. But me growing up as a kid, I was just playing football every day. I just went to school in the morning, the afternoon, came back, threw my bag in the door, and then went back out and was playing football all day long. So probably like loads of kids, not just in Belfast and Ireland, probably London, England, all around the world, loads of kids growing up wanting to be a professional footballer. And then I was really fortunate whenever I uh, joined a new team, just like a boys club when I was 11. 
and happened to be one of the coaches was the scout for Tottenham Hotspur. And on my first night playing for the team, the scout went around and asked my dad, would I be interested in going over to, to Spurs? And of course, that then leads on until eventually he could offer the contract at 16. And then I'm off on my travels, leaving Belfast, leaving all the friends and family behind to go and start this career or at least, you know, hope for a career in professional football. And of course, you're talking about, you know, playing for Spurs and Norwich and internationally. You know, if I jump ahead, probably 16 years later, when I was 32 and coming out of football, out of the world of professional football, 16 years later, and just looking back and thinking, I've just been paid to effectively kick a ball around with my friends for nearly 20 years. Is that the most ridiculous thing in the world? Absolutely. But it's been such a privilege, such a a really enjoyable experience. Of course, there's loads of highs, loads of lows, but on the whole, I've just loved every minute of it. And you talk about highs and lows, and, and particularly given your skill set and your psychology degree and all the other things that you've come on to do now in business, Paul, how, how do you deal? I mean, you're one of the lucky ones. You, you had a very long uh, and successful career in a sport that you clearly loved, so it wasn't curtailed by injury, but there were going to be times when, you know, you lost your place in the team. Maybe you had a setback with a, with a short-term injury, weren't able to play, um, or there were moments of disappointment. How how did you deal with those? Because you have to be able to deal with them to have such a have such longevity in sport, particularly. Yeah, that was probably one of the turning points in my fledgling career. I was I was seventeen and was living in Enfield, North London, and one of my friends who. Actually, we both grew up in Belfast and his sister was living just outside London. So I used to go to their house, you know, for almost a bit of family time, being away from family from, from such a young age. So I used to go to their house just to try and have a bit of family time with them. And her husband actually gave me a book at 17. And this book effectively changed my life. It was it was written by a guy who some people may know. Uh, he's called Anthony Robbins, Tony Robbins, big personal development guru in America. And I read this book called Awaken the Jam Within, and it effectively, you know, five, 600 page book. Now, first of all, you have to think that's pretty weird for a young professional footballer wanting to read a book on personal development at 17. And also then the outcome of that was for me to take away the, probably the key message in the entire book, which was stop looking outside of yourself because everything you will ever need in life you've already got within. But that is so powerful for a 17-year-old kid. Almost just blew my mind. And it also just took the blinkers off the way I looked at life. And so to have that almost complete change in mindset at 17, and then I started looking at things of beliefs, the belief I had about myself. And, you know, my first day at Tottenham Hotspur, I actually trained with Jurgen Klinsmann. So World Cup winner, he just signed at Spurs in 1994. And I was training with him. And I created this really destructive, really unhelpful belief that looking across, training with Jurgen Klinsmann and thinking, if that's what it takes to be a professional footballer, a Premier League footballer, an international footballer, there is no way in the world I'm ever going to do that. And to have that belief that I created, which actually hung around with me for a number of years, not only just from when I read the book, but I also realized by reading the book that I had this really unhelpful belief. And it just allowed me to start trying to work on those things as well as adopting or not adopting certain beliefs about my career and what I should and shouldn't be doing. Give you another example. 
we go into the physio room. So that's kind of like the hub of the training ground. Everybody comes in there after they get changed in the morning, chat away, but like the social room. And I heard all these like top professionals, people who've been there for years, you know, like your Teddy Sheridan, Gary Mabbitts, all these, you know, amazing players. And they were saying things like, oh, we man, Paul, play as long as you can. Your playing days are the best days of your life. You know, you'll miss it when you're gone. You'll be a long time retired. And because I'd read this book and I used to listen to them thinking, well, if I do adopt those kind of beliefs about me and my career, my life, is that going to help me? Because I suppose the presupposition is that when I get to the end of my career, the rest of my life's pretty much going to be downhill and I'm never going to enjoy myself as much as the first 15, 20 years of my life. So I kind of thought that's not really a helpful belief to have, but everybody in the change room was saying it and it was almost like a, just like a common belief that people accepted in football. Mm. I'd love to just focus on beliefs. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves because I want to naturally uh, move on to what you do now uh, and talk about that in some detail. Um, but obviously we don't let the footballing story go just yet. But this whole belief system, uh, what I'm hearing, I think, is that it's more for you about nurture than nature. I mean, clearly you had talent, but you're out there every day practicing football in the street, in war-torn Belfast, with all that was going on. But you, I think, developed not just a skill set, a physical skill set that you developed by training every day, but also you developed a mindset that, that, you know, I don't know if it had you punching above your weight. You're a very talented footballer. I watched you play on many occasions and you represented your country. So you had to be pretty good to be able to do that. But it seems to me from everything I know about you, Paul, that you have developed something that gave you an edge over other people and existed between your two ears. Is, is, is that fair? Well, yeah, I think it's I think it's accurate because, you know, you're talking about a technical side and, you know, I was never the best player in the team. And again, that's me not trying to be modest or humble. That's just a, an accurate representation that I was never the best player. OK, I was never the worst player, but I was just somewhere in the middle, you know, I had that average technical ability. And of course, this doesn't come across on a podcast, but, you know, being four foot nothing, being a little short arse as I am, I was always the smallest player. Don't say team. that. We're the same height. <laughs> <laughs> but you know that's the thing I was always the smallest player so I couldn't out strength out run out muscle you know anyone physically so I suppose I came to realize that one of the things that I'd really need to improve on especially once I read this book and understanding the potential within my mindset and psychology is that if I could outsmart people out think almost have a better strategy I suppose I was looking for that competitive edge because I didn't have the technical, you know, talent and, I, and physically I was never going to be able to compete with them. So, but I thought if I can do that, so then that led me down a whole other route. So at 17, 18, I went in to see our first sports scientist who started working at Tottenham Hotspur, just as we'd um, changed from Mill Hill over to uh, Spurs Lodge in Chigwell, near where Alan Sugar used to live. And, and we had his first sports scientist and I said to him, do you know any sports psychologists I can go and see? And he said, what's wrong? I said, nothing. I just, I just want to go and see a sports psychologist to improve what I'm doing. And again, that's part of the stigma with sports psychology now is that most people go and see a sports psychologist when there's something wrong, as opposed to I went to see him at 18 because I was performing okay. I was doing okay in the youth team, just got my first pro contract. But I was performing okay, but I wanted to improve. So that was my mindset of how did I get better. And then that led me through, you know, always trying to do something else, incorporating visualization into my daily training schedule, um, starting yoga. So at 17, my mum suggested, why don't you try yoga? 
I was like, what, in a church hall with a bunch of middle-aged women? No, thanks. <laughs> it's not really for me, to be honest. Anyway, you know, you'll remember this. You know, the videos you used to have. I remember getting a video of yoga and started doing it at home until eventually I took that all the way through my career. And you talked about injuries. I actually went through my entire career of nearly 20 years and only had one muscle injury. Now, again, going forward, about to do with the, the masters did in psychology, you have an understanding of critical thinking, critical analysis, cause and effect. Because I did that yoga, it's like, what? Does that mean why I never got a muscle injury? I don't know, but I suppose you could probably ask it. Another question is, is it a coincidence that I started yoga at 17, I'm now 43, 25 years later, I've still been doing it pretty much every day, and I just don't have any injuries. I don't know if that's a coincidence or not, but I think the strategy that I've used is really helping me. So it's, it was more an open-mindedness to want to improve and get better at everything I did, as opposed to realizing this is the way you are and kind of deal with it. And, and 20 years ago, I mean, I have to say you were well ahead of your time. In the modern era, you know, we know people like Brendan Rogers, very, very successful manager. He adopts all these principles, doesn't he? And there's, I think there's a great awareness now that success also exists in, in the mind as well as the body. So um, the transition, because, you know, you have a close connection with an organization, a charitable organization that helps players transition from sport to something else. Mm -hmm. And you've done that very, very successfully. We'll talk about that in a moment. But the transition from the world, you know, the bubble in which you live, I mean, even more so now than probably ever before, you know, in the in the past, you'd go and have a beer with your mates, um, your your friend and my friend, Paul Miller, for example. I know that back in the day that you'd all go and have a beer and stuff. And it wasn't uh, quite what it is in the in, in the world in which you live and operate today in the world of sport. But um, the transition from sport to something else has always been a problem. And, you know, it's no coincidence that a large number of footballers end up bankrupt within a number of years of finishing the game. Uh, and there are all kinds of mental health issues and various other things that happen. And yet you transitioned from, from sport to your career now quite seamlessly. Was it something you planned to do before you left sport? Or did you fall off the, the metaphorical cliff for a while and then pull yourself together and, and then think of something? Was it something you planned or was it something that just happened by default? I, I would say that it was a planning, but I don't think I can sit here and say this is what I knew I was going to do but the planning stage went back to whenever I was 21 and I remember going to um, the Norwich City College and starting and signing up for a business degree because I knew that I wanted to do something around business and I knew I wanted to work in that world but I just didn't really know what it was and then of course I started the degree and then it coincided with me fully um playing in the Norwich City first team on a regular basis and because I was going to college three times so I'd train in the morning sometimes train in the afternoon then I'd have college in the evening and that was happening three or four times a week and I was getting the match days and I was really really tired now some people might say you know oh you should have like just carried on with it but my my attitude at the time was if this degree is going to take away one percent from what I can give on the pitch then it's not worth it because I can do the degree anytime and I got the point after about six months where I was kind of knackered turning up for matches and I shouldn't have been like that so I said right I'll stop the degree the business degree and even back to when I was 21 as well I'd already decided that I wanted to write a book 
I just had no idea, A, how to write a book, and B, what it was going to be on. But I knew the title was going to be The Stupid Footballer is Dead because it was this sweeping generalization that all footballers were stupid. You know, especially, you know, 15, 20 years ago, it was in the paper virtually all the time. That just the whole, I suppose the, the attitude or the perception of professional footballers that were all stupid, you know, nobody could, you know, it, you just, you know, the example of Graham Rousseau reading a broadsheet and that was, you know, got, it was almost like headline news that a, mm. that a footballer can read, you know, one of the broadsheets and just going, this is so ridiculous. Why would you have this sweep of generalization, which I really didn't like. And I suppose I always wanted to buck the trend of never wanting to be just a footballer. So when you're talking about that transition, it was more because as I was playing and going through my career, I understood, again, probably starting to understand more of the psychology about my identity. And without going too deep into the psychology part of this, but essentially a football and career, a professional football and career contract is an extrinsic event. I have no control over whether I have a professional career or not. No control. Otherwise, I would have gone to Real Madrid and said, I'm signing for you, lads, so because <laughs> this is yeah. this is the place to be. But it wasn't. All I could do was put myself into the best possible opportunity. Hopefully, then a professional team would offer me a contract. So when I realized that that was out of my control, knowing the stats of people struggling as they come out of football, I realized, well, if I'm just a footballer and that's out of my control and suddenly that's taken away, my life's kind of going to fall apart. So very quickly, I realized I wanted to be a student. So I started my degree, even though it didn't fully work out. But then I started buying houses, renting them out. Then I started learning Italian. Then I started playing the piano. Then I started going dancing with my girlfriend. You know, all these different things that I wanted to wanted to do and wanted to have in my life so that I then suddenly had 10 different things that I could identify as and if one of them was a footballer and suddenly that one was taken away from me I still had all these things and you know realized that that would probably be a much uh, better identity to have than just being a footballer putting to one side the fact that most people would now be listening to all those amazing skills that you've acquired through through application it must be said uh, you're the person that they always referred to at school as that really annoying kid who could do everything. Um, but in <laughs> well, fairness, I didn't what, do them well. I didn't do well, them well. I just tried what, them. What I'm hearing, Paul, is that you know you applied yourself. It, what I'd like to do now, Paul, is just talk a little bit more about what you're doing now. I know there's lots of people out there that would be desperate for me to ask you lots more questions about your footballing career and dish the dirt on lots and lots of people. But let's talk about the things that's literally changing the lives of businesses and individuals around the world. Are there any key principles that when you work with individuals and businesses, you get them to focus on? Is there kind of a mantra by which you live? I know obviously every individual and business will be different and you will have different principles and applications for the clients that you work with. But are there any kind of rules for life that you that you try to get people to live by? Well, I suppose when you say in rules that that's whenever it becomes a little bit difficult to apply to all people across all situations. So a lot of the time, whenever I was going in to say, go and do a keynote for Microsoft, I'm going in to talk to 250 of their senior people across Australasia. Now, everybody is going to be at such a different level in their career, stage in their career, um, understanding background experiences. So a lot of the times, my work initially is to try and help people understand why I believe their mental performance is the number one thing they think I think they should be working on. So because 
most people, and again, this is not a judgment in any way at all, more of an observation of what I've kind of experienced, the people that I've worked with, especially in the corporate world, is that a lot of people are technically very, very competent at their jobs. So for instance, if I've gone in and I've done a keynote at say PwC, so you have a whole lot of chartered accountants, everybody, everywhere. And now they're all at the same level from a technical point of view. But does that mean that they all perform at the same level consistently? Of course not. So then you think, okay, if it's not the technical aspect that's going to be the differential, what else could be involved? If I step back into the footballing world for a second, we had four different corners that we worked on. One was obviously technical, but then you had the physical component of your performance, which again would be less important probably for most people working in offices. And then you have the, the biggest area for me, which is the psychological and then, of course, social as well of how you, how you deal with the people around you. And whenever I kind of offer that out and say, which of those four corners do you think is most important? Time and time and time again, no matter what level of seniority, no matter what country you do it and no matter what size of company, the majority of people, if you're putting it in the percentage, would say 70% down to the psychological or mental performance, 10% technical, 10% physical, 10% social. And that, for me, reinforces why the work that I do is really to help people understand that if you're not working, and I'm saying consciously working on your mental performance, I think you're missing a massive trick. Mm. Because it's the same if you walk into a Premier League changing room. Technically, just to get into the changing room, you have to be at an incredible level. Of course, physically, you have to be an amazing athlete. But again, not everybody can competes and performs at the same level. So what's the differential? Always comes back for me to the mental aspect of performance. So that would be just as a starting point to get people thinking about what should they be doing? And then you start going into individual aspects of the performance. What about their accountability? What about their belief system? What kind of clarity do they have of what they're trying to achieve? What are they actually focusing on whenever they're doing their job? Um, what about the, the emotional response that they have and how they manage their emotional responses? So there are so many different things that you can work on. And of course, some people will be doing certain parts of those better than others, and other people might not even be aware of them from the start. Mm. So I, I suppose my next question actually was going to be, do you see similarities between success in sport and success in business? And to some extent, by covering those four corners, as you've just done so articulately, I guess the answer is yes, um, that you can apply these principles pretty much to any aspect of your life in any career. Uh, why is it then, Paul, do you think that so many people struggle um, to overcome or, or to be elite athletes or elite performers in those four areas, particularly in the area of psychology? If 70% of the individuals that you speak to say, that's where we'd like to focus our attention. That's where we need to improve. Why is it so few people actually manage to do it? Because it's not, isn't it? You can't just wake up in the morning and go, today's going to be a great day. It's not quite as simple as that. So how do people learn to be mentally successful? I think, again, this is, it's really hard to talk about this, Andrew, without coming across as judgmental. So that's the last thing I want to be perceived as. So this is always me just, summing up my experiences of working with people a lot of people are at the point where you know what they actually aren't even aware that they're not particularly good around their mental skills or that mental side of performance so that's the first stage so if you're not even aware of it can't do anything about it some people are actually really highly aware that they're not very good at it and they want to do something about it but they're normally in the category of 
I want to do something, but I have no idea what to do. And that's really where it's a bit like, I need to lose some weight, but how do you actually lose weight? Because all these things that I've tried before have never worked. So then you go and speak to, whether it's a PT, a nutritionist, an expert in that field to hopefully work with you to allow you to lose weight. And it's the same with what I do. If you have no idea what it is that you need to do, well, then maybe go and find someone who has got expertise in that area, who has worked in that before, who has got results and success, and potentially they can work with you. And now, if, the, if a company can pay for that and bring that across someone's path, then that's great. But loads of people are starting to come to me individually to then go and do one-to-one coaching with them, especially because they're generally at the, the more senior level of, of their career, you know, because they're a bit like, because I had to perform in front of 40, 50, 60,000 every week, you have to be at your best, not just at a weekend, but every single minute of every day. And that's really tough. So when you're talking about why don't more people do it, it's because it's incredibly challenging. That's interesting. I talk about when I, you know, went through my plan days and had, you know, nearly 20 years of almost embarrassed to get paid to kick a ball around your friends. <laughs> I suppose it was being slightly, you know, uh, sarcastic when I said that, but it's because that is ridiculously hard to be your best every single day. And of course, I couldn't do that. That's the reason why I played sometimes in the Premier League, sometimes I played below the Premier League, because if I was at my best every single day, I would have played in the Premier League for my entire career. But I didn't have that ability because it's really, really tough. That's why whenever I see a, just say like a Steven Gerrard or Frank Lampard that I used to play against, now you see the Messi's and Ronaldo's. The fact that they do this so consistently at such a high level for so long, I just have to take my hat off to them because to be able to do that is probably the hardest thing in the world. And the reason why I say that is because to get to the top of professional football, I really do believe it's the most competitive and most ruthless industry on the planet. And yet, Paul, I think I, you know, I, I think my view here is shared by all those uh, tens of thousands of people listening from all around the world. The fact is, I think most of us would sit here listening to you and instinctively go, but this guy has been so successful. You know, he's had a he's had a long, uninterrupted career in sport at a very high level. He's represented his country. He's now a, a fantastic public speaker, working with some amazing clients. Um, you know, many of the blue chip names you've already mentioned, PwC, Microsoft, and, and dozens of others. What does success therefore mean to you? Because the thing I heard you say just now, which I think is a really important point is, I love the fact that you have this natural perspective of things, that you accept that you, you've mess, used the words Messi and Ronaldo to describe the elite performers of the day. Does that make them more or less successful? And everything I'm hearing is, doesn't make them more successful. It just makes them successful in a different way. So what does success mean to Paul McVeigh? That's amazing you asked that question. So without trying to get some sort of advertising for my own podcast in, which I've just started called The Psychology of Success, but that is the first question I ask every guest. What is the definition of success? Because whenever I'm doing any sessions with any of the clans that you mentioned, it is really, really important for people to establish and define what success is for them. Now, it's interesting. I've worked with a, a company called Mindspan for the last 10, 11 years, and that was because we had a sports psychologist at Norwich City called Gavin Drake. And Gavin had such a big influence on me that when you talk about that seamless transition, I'd say a large percentage of that was down to Gavin because Gavin 
almost held me by the hand coming out of professional football, started working with him in his Mindspan organization. So I was learning from Gavin, delivering training sessions all around the world on this whole world of mental performance. And the definition that Mindspan use is success is traveling the continuous journey towards worthwhile goals. And that's a great, I think that's a great definition because there's so many layers to that. You know, it's the, it's a continuous journey. It's not like climbing Everest and you go, right, Berlin, that's me, I'm done, never had to do anything else. It's that continuous journey of whatever success. And then, of course, the individual perspective is the worthwhile. Who decides what's worthwhile? So the example I use is my mum's version of success is that her four kids and her six grandkids are healthy and happy. But if I talk about my version of success when I was 16, all I wanted to do was be a professional, Premier League and international footballer. So that was my definition of success when I was 16. Now, everybody will have different and their own version of it, but actually that's all I wanted. And I was so focused on it, so clear. That's why I was getting up in the morning, doing visualization, doing yoga, going to training, seeing a psychologist, all of the things that I wanted to do because I was so 100% focused on being a professional footballer. But of course, I come out of professional football at 32 and then I'm thinking, okay, what do I want to do now? And now I'm at a stage where I come out and I wanted to be a keynote speaker. I wanted to earn X amount of pounds for each uh, keynote I delivered. And that has then taken me for the last 11 years. And then even as I'm going through that, that's changed now. So it's less about money and being sort of paid to go and deliver speeches. And now it's about the number of people I can impact around this world. The more people I can help start thinking about their mental performance and mindset. And I think that's me being successful now. And ironically, I can sum up my version of success as a 43-year-old guy today in one word, and it's balance. The only thing I want in my life now is balance. And that, of course, is because of the, the experience I had as a professional footballer where I had no balance. Because you can't really have balance in your life if you want to give every single thing to one aspect of your life. Mm. Yeah, I love that. I love the fact that you know you've you accept the fact that it changes in your perspective and visualization and goals change and develop over over the years. Hear that loud and clear. And undoubtedly, you've already started to change the mindset of a bucket load of other people on top of those that you've already influenced uh, through the work that you do. How can <laughs> we we had a bit of a chuckle about the fact that you've slipped in mention of the podcast, but we were talking about it at the top of the show. Um, and, and it's great. It's great that you are starting this podcast. I wasn't aware of what you're intending to call it because um, interestingly, this new app called that everyone refers to as Clubhouse, I was actually going to start a room on the psychology of success. So Amazing. you've beaten me to it. It just goes to show never rest on your laurels because a Paul McVeigh will always come along and pinch and pinch it from you. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I mentioned in your introduction that I'm in the process of writing a second book on the psychology of success in business, actually. Yeah. I'm really fascinated by it. I'm a great believer that you can kind of learn mental success in the same way that you develop those, those skills and those physical attributes that you mentioned before. But let's find out more about Paul McVeigh. For those people listening that want to check you out, okay, they'll do the Google search, but is there a website? Is there, you mentioned a book, the website, the book, the social media channels, 
how how do we how do we stalk you if that's what we want to do, Paul? <laughs> well, do you know what? I um I, I haven't had a stalker for a while since I've been out of football. So you know that wouldn't be a bad thing if anybody wants to be my personal stalker. That'd be nice. Um yeah, so I uh I, I do have this podcast now, which I've started. And again, you know, hats off to you, Andrew, to be able to have the success you have had with your podcast. And because I've just got my sixth episode out now, and and that's called the Psychology of Success, which you'll be able to find on on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or anywhere else you get your your podcasts. Um, I have written a book, so that book that I created the title in my mind when I was twenty one, I eventually wrote it when I was thirty four, and as I said, it's called the, the Stupid Footballer Is Dead, and essentially that was trying to help people understand why the three different areas that I think allow someone to become a professional footballer and one is really down to ability i used to think of as natural ability but over the the years and my studies and research that now is ability that's been developed to professional level i also have the physical aspect and you're either my size or my old teammate peter crouch you're six foot seven not really a lot you can do about that you just kind of it is what it is but for me the third pillar is actually the most important, not just in football, but in life. And that's the mindset of the psychology, your, your attitudes. And then in terms of social media, yeah, of course, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Instagram, Paul McVeigh 77 and Twitter, Paul McVeigh 77 as well. So yeah, more than happy to connect with people on there. Because again, didn't realize just that actually my network is probably going to be the most important thing that I have going forward. And mm. I just wish I had it done it in football. I just wasn't aware of, you know, keeping contact, getting contact details of people because that is what really makes the world ground of who you know, not what you know. And hopefully that's enough ways for people to connect. And of course, you can check out my website where you can go and download my book if you want. Um, if you go on my website, you'll be able to, to get a free copy of my book. And that's just paulmcveigh.co.uk. Fantastic. Now... In all, uh, no disrespect to any guest that has gone before you, but I think I'm anticipating with great excitement this, the answer to the next question, Paul, the last question, probably more than any other guest that's gone before you for probably all the reasons that um, will be obvious. So the question we ask all of our guests is a very simple one, and it's uh, a good way, I think, to wrap up the, the podcast. And it's and it's quite straightforward. Um, I know you're 43, but let's imagine there's a younger version of you out there somewhere. If that younger version of you came up to you one day and said, dad or uncle or whatever, given all that you have learned in life, all those skills that you've acquired mentally, physically, the journey you've been on, the highs, the lows, if you could give me one piece of advice, condensing down all those other things you've learned, and you were to give me one thing to focus on that could help me towards a greater or more successful outcome in life, what would that one piece of advice be above all others? That's a fantastic question. Um, an incredibly difficult question to answer. I'm sure you've, if you've asked that to everybody, I'm sure you've heard some profound answers and, and probably some people struggle with that. I think where my brain automatically takes me to in terms of, I was thinking, is it, you know, happiness is it to do with you know taking accountability for your life is it um learning all of those different things quickly come into my mind but i would probably supersede all of those with being open-minded i think is probably the the greatest ability 
that we have as humans. Well, you've definitely qualified and underpinned that statement with all that you've done. I mean, yoga, Italian, piano, and all the other things. You, I mean, it is extraordinary what you've achieved. And, and you've done so because of your ability from a psychological perspective to overcome those natural barriers that we're all presented with that many of us don't seem to get over or around. Uh, that, so that's a great way, I think, to end a podcast. 30 odd minutes gone in a blink of an eye. Uh, which is somewhat disappointing. I'd like to go on talking to you for, for a while longer. And we will we will talk offline because there's something else we'll talk about. Um, so I think there's a very good chance we'll see you reappear. I'll just leave that cryptically hanging for a few people. Uh, and needless to say, we will acquire a hard copy of your book because one thing we do on the podcast, Paul, is we we give prizes away for our guests or on behalf of our guests. So we'll, we'll make sure we get a hard copy of the book, maybe see if we can get your signature in it. And oh, happy, um, happy to send you one. Or maybe you could donate one of your old Alice bands or something like that. <laughs> they're, they're go, on, already, go on, tell already. us right at the end of the podcast. Tell us who were you copying when you were when you were wearing your Alice band? Well, because I have absolutely no fashion sense whatsoever, I thought, okay, who's doing it really well? David Beckham. David Beckham has an Alice band. I'm gonna have an Alice band. I, I love the fact we've got an, an admission from uh, from one of our guests. I love it. Paul McVeigh, thank you so much for for being a, a, a fantastic guest. I should say. Paolo McVeigh, grazie mille e buona giornata. Um, but it's been an absolute pleasure, real, real pleasure talking to you today. And thank you, not just for giving us an insight into, you know, this in incredible journey you've been on, but giving us so many practical tips that I think will help a, a great many listeners from different parts of the world. So thank you and look forward to staying connected and maybe, who knows, having you back on the podcast uh, at some point soon. I, I'm not I'm not important enough or clever enough to be on yours, but Hopefully, we'll get you back on this one at some point. Prego. <laughs>